So 20 years ago, or for 20 years or so, I should say, a guy by the name of Peter Simi has been researching white supremacist groups. So he's gotten so deep into this research that they've allowed him actually to come into their private meetings as an observer, which you can imagine some of the things that he witnessed. So groups like the White Aryan Resistance, Nazi Lowriders, Public Enemy Number One, so on. And what's interesting is he talks about some of the findings that he observed in those communities. And specifically, he tells a story of a woman named Bonnie. Now, Bonnie and her husband were fully indoctrinated and committed to their white supremacist beliefs. And then, uh, as bad luck should have it, they were at a big gathering and a domestic dispute broke out, unrelated to their white power group. But in a skirmish, a relative ended up shooting their daughter. At the hospital, um, they rushed her to the hospital. The doctors jumped in and saved her life. And interestingly, both doctors were African American. And so all of a sudden, this Bonnie woman and her husband have this sort of tension that they have to wrestle with, where their, their loved one, their precious daughter, who was going to die, was saved by people that are lesser than them in their minds, or that they hated. And so this event, along with probably some others, really shifted the way that they saw these deeply ingrained beliefs. They felt like they had to reconcile this experience with um, maybe some lies that they bought into. And so over a period of time, they decided to start doing away with anything that's racist in their thinking. And they took it to such an extreme that they moved to Southern California in an area that was highly populated with African Americans and Hispanic people. And so they, they really, really were making an effort to shift the way that they were experiencing life. Well, one day, Bonnie is in the drive-thru. She goes through, orders her thing, you know, and it's hard sometimes speaking into those microphone things. And she, she makes her order, gets to the place where you pay, the, the lady gives the order to her, and it's the wrong order. And so it's a, it's a Mexican woman who's serving her. And so she says, well, this is the wrong order. Um, can we swap it? And the person says no, and they're kind of hustling her along. And you, she's being kind of triggered. So she parks the car, she goes inside. Everyone at the restaurant is Mexican. And so she, um, she goes up and finds the manager, and the manager doesn't really speak English and isn't really hearing what Bonnie is complaining about, and she just comes unglued. She's just losing her mind. And the way that she used to think and behave just started spewing out of her mouth, where she said, according to this Peter Zimmy, she said that, he said that she, uh, she swore at the clerk, she slammed her hands down, she told the clerk to get out of her country, she yelled, white power, and she left displaying the Nazi salute. Like, talk about, like, really going backwards. <laughs> like, everything she could come up with just spewed out of her in that moment. Bonnie left the restaurant, got in her car, and collapsed. Defeated. She realized that something had just happened. That despite desperately wanting to change, there was this ingrained scenario going on inside of her beyond what she could willpower her way out of. And it just spewed out of her in the most unexpected and probably most needless moment. 
And so Peter Zimmy sort of studied that. And he said, what's interesting is there was legitimate shame there. Like she actually felt ashamed of what she did. There was remorse. But what he's noticed is that when you hate, it becomes an addiction. It becomes something that's deeply ingrained in our psyche at times. And so how he describes hate is as, as a, like an addiction. Those who try to quit hating sometimes can relapse. And because racism is this deep kind of hatred, it burrows deep into the psyche, and it's really difficult to be rid of it. Simi calls it the hangover effect. That even if we try to move away from something we know we don't want to be anymore, it still can be pulling strings in our lives like a puppet. So um, apparently some of the people that he's worked with have tried to get mental health services and tried to have counselors help them. And, and he says, usually counselors say, we, we just don't feel qualified. We don't know how to take this one. Now, it's difficult when we come, terms, come to terms with the fact that there are things happening inside of us that are beyond our willpower. When we get the sense that as much as I want to change these things and I make an effort to, I can sustain a change sometimes in myself for so long, but then inevitably, I end up doing things I never thought I could do, or I end up thinking things, or my attitudes shift in places where I certainly don't want to think that way, but I can't deny the fact that I do. It's whether we, we think of it in the physical sense where I'm trying to point myself in a straight line and I'm gonna to try to walk in a straight line. We know from our little exercise here that physically, after a while, if our eyes are closed, if we're not introspective in those moments, that we start to deviate even physically and in, in other ways, in spiritual ways, or in, in the ways that we see people or in our attitudes, that same kind of deviation happens over 20 or 50 or 100 steps from our good intentions. And so we hear uh, the Apostle Paul describe this in Romans uh, in a way that sounds awfully familiar to most of us. Romans 7, if you're following along. By the way, this projector's on the fritz, so sorry for the folks on this side. But Romans 7 is where we're looking today, Romans 7 and 8. This part's not going to be up on the screen. I'm just going to read it. So I'm going to take it from the message because I feel like when I read it, in, or actually I have it in the Passion Translation. So listen, just listen to these words of how Paul describes desperately wanting to be the best version of himself, but so consistently falling short. He says, I'm a mystery to myself. For I want to do what's right, but I end up doing what my moral instincts condemn. And if my behavior is not in line with my desire, my conscience still confirms the excellence of the law. And now I realize it's no longer my true self doing it. We kind of picture the lady at the restaurant. But it's this unwelcome intruder of sin that's stuck in my, human, in human, in my humanity. For I know that nothing good lives within the flesh of my fallen humanity. The longings to do what is right are within me. They're there. But willpower is not enough to accomplish it. My lofty desires to do what is good are dashed when I do the things I want to avoid. So if my behavior contradicts my desires to do good, 
I must conclude that it's not my true identity that's doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin hindering me from being who I really am. So I don't know how that strikes you, whether it sounds like a cop-out where Paul is saying, well, it's not me that's making mistakes, it's this sin in me. I'm not sure. But as we look through the passage today, I think we'll see that he's making a point that we can all relate to. So Lord, as we open more of your word, we pray that it would stick on things in our lives that need confronting or that maybe need a reminder. Uh, we ask you to show us your name. So Romans is uh, Paul's, one of Paul's most famous books. And it's a book that many theologians kind of call his masterpiece. And for the first six chapters, he's looking through uh, his arguments on why the Jesus life really is good news. And that goes in a lot of different directions. But when we get to chapter 7 and 8, and we pair them together, we see him wrestling with the moral dilemma of how, uh, as a Jewish person, how he comes in contact with the law versus the spirit. We almost see him arguing that this is a big question that we have to resolve as people of faith. Are we people of the law or are we people of the spirit? So let's jump in, uh, chapter 7. We're just going to walk our way through chapter 7 a little bit. We're not going to do the whole chapter 7 and 8, but I've got some highlights. And, uh, and we'll just wander through, take our time with it today. So, it starts off like this. Do you know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know about the law, that the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. In other words, um, when you die... The laws that were part of your life when you were alive are null and void because you're dead. They're, they're, they end with your death. And so Paul is saying when someone dies, the law that, that controlled them is no longer relevant. For example, here's, a, here's an illustration. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as she is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. Um, so then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. That's the law. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law. It's not an adulteress now if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, all that to say, my illustration to describe what your relationship can be like with the law. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So over the last couple weeks, we've launched into this discussion on submission. And let me tell you, it is a trigger word for a lot of us, we figured out. Submission, it's a, it's, it literally has the name of our city in it. But um, it feels... <laughs> good if we had a subway. It is not a word that's not that easy to wrestle with. Um, ben, a couple weeks ago, was talking about how in the, in the discipleship trajectory, as we get closer to Jesus, we get to this point where he calls us out of just friendship to a deeper submission. And he used the story where he offered awful fishing advice to a really great fisherman, Peter, and Peter has to decide, is he going to rely more on his human instinct and say, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus, you're not a fisherman, or is he going to submit to someone that he thinks maybe knows more about more things than he ever could? And he does, and he goes out into the deep water off of fishing advice, 
during the day off of fishing advice, after being out all night off of fishing advice, and he catches more fish than he's ever seen in his life. And so we see this sense that sometimes submitting to someone that knows more and wants what's best for us is good, and yet there's something inside of us that Paul describes as our flesh. The, the word sarks, I think it sounds like cooler than flesh. But it's like our humanity, our human instinct, our human dilemma, the way that we are human. This thing that's in all of us that keeps us from being the best version of ourselves doesn't like the idea of not getting to have the right to call shots in our lives. Our flesh, Paul would say, is at war with our spirit. And so he describes here in Romans 7, he says, so there's an opportunity, part of this good news he's been talking about for the first six chapters, is that we can die to the law. That we can die to the idea of measuring our worth, our identity, our esteem, whatever, based on how well we keep the rules. And he actually goes so far as to make it sound like the law is the thing that makes us do things we shouldn't do. Let's go to the next verses there. He says, so what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. So he's saying the law itself, the rules aren't bad. It's not bad to have rules. But if it's the rules, them being present is what actually made me realize that I was doing things that were wrong. Or made me realize there were things I could do that are wrong. He says it this way. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, or this fleshly part of me, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, so it says not to do it, so now I'm curious why, you know, Ooh, don't eat that apple, and it tastes good, produced in me every kind of coveting. It's like the thing I'm not supposed to do almost, like, seduces me to want to try it. Far, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Like, until there was something that called it bad, we weren't even aware of the apple kind of thing. It's like, oh, now that the apple has been mentioned, now I'm kind of curious. <laughs> but when the commandment came, sin, sin, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life, a good thing from God, that was intended to bring life, actually pointed out that there's some messed up stuff in me. St. Augustine wrote his confessions, and he has this famous story that I came across this week that I think just so articulates this. I'm going to read it in his words, and uh, he's not from 2022. You might notice that. <laughs> but um, I think that his experience doesn't sound that familiar. It sounds pretty common to how. Okay, I'll just get into it. Get on with it already. <laughs> there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears. 
But it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I had plenty better pears at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of an enemy. And that I enjoyed to the fullest. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden with a dim similitude of impotence? How we all say that, don't we? <laughs> the desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. I wanted the pears because I knew I wasn't supposed to have the pears. I wanted to take them because they weren't mine. Set that thing in the category of forbidden things, or put a place out of bounds, and immediately they become fascinating, enticing, seducing. In that sense, the law produces sin. The flesh comes out. Let's carry on in the chapter. Paul goes on to say, verse 11, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So this is the idea that there is this part in us that gets convinced that there are things that, like the pear on the tree, use that as an analogy of whatever it is that entices or seduces us. Uh, it, it, we become delusional about how we think it's going to go. And we do this over and over and over again, where we see something that we think, you know what, that, that's not gonna, that's not gonna hurt me. Or or that's that's gonna satisfy me. Or I can justify, I can justify that this time and this way I could do that, and you know, it's probably fine. Or it's like I, I know I'm, I shouldn't, but if I nuance it this way, and if I manipulate kind of the way I do it, then I probably can sneak under the radar and it's, you know, my conscience isn't too bothered by it. And then the worst one is, we convince ourselves, oh, there won't be any ramifications. Nobody will be bothered by this. This won't hurt. This won't, this won't matter. And so we see this delusional self of how we become like the, the person Paul says he becomes. Why? Do I set out wanting to head in this direction? Knowing that it's right. Wanting it even. But then it's like something in me dragged me over to the old dark side again. And it's like the devil and angel on my shoulder and the devil wins out one more time. Unrelatable? Probably just me. Right. So he has a, a, a pretty provocative ending to the chapter here. We'll put that up. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. I think he's speaking for all of us here. The moment I decide to be good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. It's not an issue of whether I want to do what's right, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me, there must be some aspect of me that doesn't join in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, those parts jump out and take charge, and I yell at the lady at the counter who can't speak English. I've tried everything, and nothing helps, Paul says. <clears throat> and at the end of my, whoa, hang on, a little bit more. 
Sorry. So I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? In our uh, home groups, the week three sort of smaller gatherings, one of the ones that we were at, we were talking about, like, what would be the impetus to submit your life to Jesus? What would kind of put you to that point? And someone in one of the groups I was in said, when you've tried everything else and you just, none of it works, and you just finally give up, where it's like I've literally struggled my way to try to find a way to will myself to be who I know I want to be. And I just seem to have this thing I carry that doesn't let me get all the way there. That's kind of how Paul's describing it, isn't he? And then he has this beautiful last verse, verse 25. The answer doesn't leave us hopeless. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally Anybody know who Andre Agassi is? Yeah. Heard that name before? Yeah, tennis player? So he came out with a memoir a few years ago. And it, it's crazy because the he had this he had this chapter in the book, and I remember a good friend of mine was a huge Andre Agassi fan, so he was telling me about this. Where he was a former number one player in the world, ranked for years. He and Pete Sampras would always go head-to-head. -head. Those of you that are, were around that time probably remember that. And, uh, and in his memoir, he confessed to the world that despite being a, an eight-time Grand Slam champion, winning millions of dollars in tennis, that he hated tennis. He says, I hate tennis. And it wasn't like, it wasn't funny. I know it sounds funny to us. He's, he wrote this. He said, I hate tennis. I hate it with a dark, secret passion, and I always have. I hate tennis, I hate it with all my heart. And still I keep playing, I keep hitting all morning and all afternoon because I have no choice. No matter how much I want to stop, I don't. I keep begging myself to stop, and still I keep playing. Listen to this. And this gap, this contradiction, between what I want to do and what I actually do feels like the core of my life. So sub in other, it doesn't have to be tennis. I don't think tennis is the point there. But he's describing that experience of feeling duplicity, you know, being pulled in two different directions, of feeling divided or feeling like on the one hand he really wants to step into this but on the other hand, he can't because there's something so compelling inside of him that just creeps in and robs him of what he wants. And Paul comes and says, the answer, thank God, is Jesus Christ. And so we need a little more than that, Paul. Good news, there's chapter 8. <laughs> so, chapter 8. We're not going to do the whole chapter, don't worry. So... Listen to this with me. Sometimes you got to read a lot to get the sense. Okay, so that's what we're doing here. Give yourself a pinch if you're drowsing off. Um, is that a word, drowsing off? <laughs> Dozing off. Is what 
I'm combining drowsy and dozing. Okay. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Andre, your dilemma is resolved. Those who enter in Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud because a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. So uh, I had to read through this several times, like seven and eight, to try to wrap my head around the progression. And so let me just, here's how I'm thinking about it, okay? Maybe you have a better way of describing it. But Paul starts off by saying, okay, um, just like uh, a woman losing her husband has new freedom, um, so you who die to the old way of measuring your life by the rules have new freedom. So you don't have to define yourself by how well you measure up to that old law any longer. And actually, it's good you don't, because that old law, what it would do, it would just point out what a rotten scoundrel you are, basically. So you see the pear tree, and you want the pears. The law seems to just point out the law isn't bad, it just helps us see how we can be rotten scoundrels. And then he carries on to say, so, <clears throat> the new way is with Christ. And verse 3 and 4 says, God went for the jugular by sending his own son to take on the law. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on sarks. He personally took on flesh. He took on the human condition. So he stepped into the place of humanity and he experienced the tension of duplicity, of, of wanting two things at the same time, or wanting one really bad but not being able to do it, except he could, and he did. He entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. Paul says that he was a sin offering, so he was... He was sacrificed as an offering to redeem the way that we relate to rules. The law code, weakened as it always was, but was, but was fractured by human nature and could have never done that. So we, we see this new offer in Jesus that rather than measuring how we're doing based on an external sense, an external set of legal demands and laws, he invites us into measuring how we're doing based on how willing we are to listen to a spirit inside of us that wants the best for us and is promoting the best version of ourselves one step at a time. And so rather than being measured, say it again, from external circumstances, now we're being invited into a relationship with a loving father. So the submission is either to a, a law or defining our own law, saying I'll just figure out what I want to do is right, and you know, I'll have my own thing. Or submitting to a loving God who says, I will give you a spirit that helps put to death the things in your body that need to be killed off one thing at a time. That's, uh, and so the next part of the chapter, we won't read it because I don't even have it there. He basically contrasts living with sarks is like being an enemy to God. And you kind of are, are passionate about the things that, that you want. 
And so it's all about what you want. And so you pursue them, and you uh, weasel your way into finding them. Living with the Spirit is about trying to listen to things that maybe aren't the way they should be in yourself. And so that sort of begins to gradually go to work on the things that really are dead and broken inside. And then he, he carries on back and forth this contrast, living in the flesh versus living by the Spirit. And, he end, and I'm going to end with, with verse 11. That's not where he ends, but just for sake of time. This awesome, powerful promise. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, okay? So if the spirit that can bring dead things back to life is in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. In other words, in the same way that the sacrificial lamb, that the, the sin offering, that Jesus is raised from the dead, in the same way that same spirit, that same energy impulse from above can bring life to broken parts of you that run into a restaurant at your most extreme and yell at the lady at the till with racial slurs, or that, that knows that tennis is not what you're after, or subbing your own, but <coughs> confronts the control desires of the flesh that says, I don't want to give up what is mine. My precious. <laughs> <laughs> My flesh. Yeah. Is, that, is that ringing true for you? Is there a nugget there for you? I hope so. So some of us might say, well, you know, I did that. I uh, handed that off and still there, though. You know, I tried that one and it didn't quite work out. And Paul is saying that. He's not saying that it's just instant. But what I love about it is that it's not a, a guarantee that, hey, pray the prayer. We have this little transaction we do and then bingo, bango. No more... No more temptation, no more flesh, no more selfishness. But he says instead that, that rather than, than being consumed with the dread that you feel or the shame that you feel when you dip into the bad version of yourself, the new law is a law of love and forgiveness and grace and truth are the words he uses. Where the spirit gets to correct the things. So we're already forgiven, our identity's intact, and as those, those dead things inside of us, in our mortal bodies, present themselves, the this, this spirit takes them on. It says, okay, this is a stain. This is a blend. This is something we got to sort out. Uh, Tesla came out with um, self-driving software. You heard about this? Tesla has like, you get to pick whether you want chill mode, average mode, or, uh, uh, they say, assertive mode. <laughs> and they say you can actually measure how much of a jerk you want to be and program that into your Tesla. So it's like, it, it literally comes down to how, how close you follow behind people. Assertive mode is like being a jerk, basically. They, they, put, they call it assertive. But it's aggressive. And it's like changing lanes at high speeds and all the things that it measures. It, and you get this sense that it's like, it's, it's what the flesh would be if it, it was a test. You know? It's like, at my worst, like just program me to always be a jerk in the way that I drive. 
You know, I, in fairness, would for sure pick that role. <laughs> but the, the offer is to, is to be not reprogrammed into chill or average mode, but it's to have the programmer in the car with you. You know, it's a, it's a different kind of category. It's a, new, a whole new wiring. It's a wiring that's on the fly. It's not, uh, it's not trading autopilot one for autopilot two. It's trading autopilot for instructions on the fly. All right, so we're almost done here, folks. <sighs> one more thing I wanted to say. At least one more thing. <laughs> right. So you may be noticed that communion sitting in front of us here. And uh, it's hard to avoid uh, the, the grace and the truth and the generosity of this offer. And, you know, when you approach communion from different vantage points, sometimes it strikes different, uh, differently. And in this case for me, it's the word flesh that... Like we read in the passage, Jesus takes on flesh. Uh, like in, in John it says, he takes on flesh and he moves into our neighborhood. So flesh, he takes on the condition that brings out the worst in us. And he transforms it to bring out the best in us. He overcomes the capacity of flesh so that we can step into what he offers us from a neutral space to start living in the, in the experience of the spirit directing us. Um, just looking at the time here. I think we have time. Just, just, this really kind of brought it alive for me too. And then we'll have communion. There's UCLA and McMaster University are doing research on like what's happening when people have a gut feeling. Do you ever have gut feelings? <clears throat> so they're, they're like, they're doing the scientific research to try to figure out if something is physically happening in your body when you have a gut feeling. And their studies point to the way that there are microbes in your stomach that affect the neural activity in your brain. So your brain's not just another organ, they say. It's affected by what goes on in the rest of your body. So in fact, Scientific American reports that there is an often overlooked number of neurons that line our guts, that it's so ex extensive that some scientists have nicknamed it our second brain. Isn't that interesting? That our guts like really do <coughs> interact with how we think. And so it's no wonder that, that Jesus describes this opportunity to engage with our bodies in a way where in our guts we experience the difference of uh, how he operates in his flesh. Okay, so the link here is communion. He invites us to ingest the molecules of wheat and grapes in the same way that we ingest spiritually his spirit. And so literally at the gut level, we're being shifted into people that are more in tune with the Spirit.
So here's the invitation. To those of you who have the courage to ask the burning questions, to those of you who are ready to do something with God's answers, this invitation to communion, to coming into union, <coughs> is for you. These are holy things we're about to do, and a holy God we're about to come face to face with. In light of all this, it is important that you accept this invitation with humility and with thoughtfulness. Let's just be quiet for a moment and do a bit of introspection on how, uh, how the duplicity human predicament is going for us. Are there things we're trying to will ourselves out of? Or have we received uh, forgiveness that allows us a foundation to listen to how the Spirit wants to move us along in a new direction? Let's give a, I'll give you a minute or so. 